Welcome to Surviving Society Presents Material Crimes. This Spotlight series looks at the crimes of infrastructure, at who benefits and who is harmed in their making, and how. In season one, we'll be hearing about a mine in South Africa, a train line in Palestine, the infamous Guantanamo Bay prison, and a central bus station in Tel Aviv. And across the series, we'll hear what infrastructure tells us about those big, enduring political questions. Capitalism, colonialism, and racism, and how people can and do resist. On the 24th of October, 2021, the Tel Aviv Court for Local Affairs issued a closure order for the Tel Aviv New Central bus station that is meant to come into force on the 5th of December 2022. The reason? The Nitzpa company, which owns Tel Aviv Central bus station, has failed to obtain the required health and safety certificates. As a result, the station runs without a legal business license. The court's decision lifted a heavy burden from the life of the Neve Shana neighborhood residents within which the Central bus station is located. For three decades, they have fought for shutting down the station, which made their neighborhood one of the most polluted areas in Israel. Back in 1985, they formed a committee that led a public and legal campaigns against the Central bus station. The struggle was later backed by several alleys, most notably the Nevesha Anan-based feminist Mizrahi movement Achoti, alongside local activists and NGOs, such as the Association for Civil Rights in Israel, BIMCOM, Planners for Planning Rights, and the Israel Union for Environmental Defense. However, the celebration did not last for long. Disagreements between the Tel Aviv municipality and the Ministry of Transport regarding the relocation of the buses ended with a compromise to fully end the central bus station commercial and transport activities somewhere between 2023 and 2025. We were sure that, okay, now the, the buses are being evacuated and it's like opening again, like it's a new opening after three decades to open again and to break their, their uh, uh, promise. It's not only a promise, it's obligation, it's the declaration. What makes the central bus station and the campaigns around it so contentious? And what do we learn from the fact that one of the most hateful and polluting structures in Israel has been so difficult to remove? What might seem on the surface as a mere conflict of interest over technicalities regarding compensation and relocation reveal a more complex story of racial capitalism, discriminatory geography, and settler colonialism. You are listening to Material Crimes. My name is Moore Cohen, and I will be your host for today's episode. For most of my life, I managed to stay away from the central bus station in Tel Aviv. Like many other Israelis, I was entrenched in the station's grim mythology and unflattering nicknames. The White Elephant, The Concrete Monster, Tel Aviv's Backyard are just a few of them. There were good reasons for these nicknames. From its very beginning, Tel Aviv's central bus station has been a structural failure, a financial burden, and an ecological hazard. The architectural vision of Ram Karmi, who designed the station back in the 1950s, as a city under one roof where people shop while they are waiting for their buses to arrive, was never realized. 
The station's brutalist structure consists of eight floors that are connected to each other by ramps and stretches over 44,000 square meters, the equal of six football stadiums. Each floor has boulevards of stores, bazaars, and public squares that were supposed to imitate the dynamism and multifunctionality of urban life. In case of an apocalypse, the bottom floor has atomic bomb shelters with water reservoirs that can contain up to 16,500 people. The first and second floors used to have a mix of bus terminal, stores, and entertainment areas, such as cinema halls, but since the early 2000s they have been completely shut. A combination of massive space with many unused plots and extreme air pollution in the station's underground floors produced a separation between the commerce and transport part and placed the business owners between a rock and a hard place where they cannot afford to sell their shops nor to financially sustain them. The parts of the station that were left uninhabited occasionally hit the headlines with story about sex and drug trafficking, murder and rape in dark alleys. A 2017 report published by the Ministry of Environmental Protection found that the residents of Neve Shanan have 22.55% more chances of health complication and early death as a result of the station's polluting activity. By the time of its official opening in 1993, the residents of Neve Shanan had already been fighting the station for a very long time. The neighborhood is a small working class area in South Tel Aviv, largely composed of Mizrahi Jews, that is Jews of North African and Middle Eastern descent. More crucially, perhaps, Neve Shanan already had a central bus station. Building another one did not make any sense. This is Shula Keshet, an artist, a Mizrahi feminist, a resident of Neve Shanan, and one of the main figures leading the campaign against the central bus station, describing how this campaign has shaped her activist consciousness. We made a lot of protests and we went to the court and we were lobbying, you know, in the government, in the parliament, and in Tel Aviv Jaffa a, a municipality. And we made a lot of uh, media and everything. But that morning I realized that we established the committee in 1989 and four years after the establishment of the committee and our uh, activities uh, in protest, they didn't give a damn about us. They didn't even want to hear our voices. I realize how we are transparent. The harsh reality of the people living under the shadow of the central bus station gained public attention with the arrival of tens of thousands of asylum seekers to Israel between the late 2000 and early 2010s. Many of them who fled from Eritrea and Sudan have resided in Aveh Sha'anan and the adjacent neighborhoods due to the cheap rent, accessible transportation, and proximity to humanitarian NGOs, churches, and migrant-owned shops. Given the tenuous legal status of asylum seekers in Israel, the central bus station became a lifeline for those who were denied access to health, education, and welfare services. But what are the ideological underpinnings of what might seem on the surface as two disparate developments? The first being the construction and ruination of the central bus station, and the second, the decision to concentrate some of the most vulnerable and marginalized groups in a neighborhood that has been neglected for decades. In order to understand things in Israel, usually you have to take a few steps back. This is Sharon Rothbaut, an architect, writer, and publisher who lives in the Shapira neighborhood located south of Neve Sha'anan. Sharon is the author of the book White City, Black City, Architecture and War in Tel Aviv and Jaffa, one of the most important and cited works on the topic. I would start our story uh, of Neve Sha'anan in the year of its establishment. Uh, which is 1921, so it's uh, exactly 
uh, a century ago. And uh, immediate context of its uh, foundation um, is the clashes between Jews and uh, Arabs in Jaffa in the 1st of May uh, 1921. The Jaffa clashes should be understood against the background of the British conquest of Palestine and the signing of the Balfour Declaration in 1917 that supported the building of a Jewish nation-state in Palestine. The end of the First World War also brought with it a wave of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, both fleeing from the pogroms of Tsarik Russia and bearing strong Zionist socialist sentiments intensified by the 1917 revolution. The growing influence of the Zionist movement in Palestine, backed by another colonial force, deepened the tension between Jews and Arabs. The 1921 riots acted as a pivotal catalyst not only for the residential and economic separation between Jews and Arabs, but also for the expansion of Zionist settlements on the outskirts of Jaffa and towards the newly founded city of Tel Aviv. Neveh Shanan was one of them. It was founded by a group of 400 Jews. Many were former residents of Jaffa who fled the neighborhood after the clashes. They purchased a piece of orchid land at a relatively low price of 30,000 pounds, the equivalent of 1.5 million pounds today. Neveh Shanan, which in Hebrew means a peaceful abundance, is to a degree typical of the Jewish neighborhoods that were built on the outskirts of Jaffa, such as Shapira, Florentine, Hatikva, and Ezra. It held a separatist Zionist ideology and extended the reach of the settler colonial project in Palestine. Yet its proximity to Jaffa and its Jewish multi-ethnic and class composition placed it outside of the geographical and mythical boundaries of the city of Tel Aviv. The latter was imagined as a European-inspired city born out of the seashore's white sand, populated almost exclusively by bourgeoisie European Jews, also known as Ashkenazim. Neveh Shanan's spatial plan expressed the Auburn self-sufficient vision its founder hoped for their new neighborhood. They did a, uh, uh, an architectural competition and they hired an architect uh, who designed the neighborhood in the form of, a, of the menorah, the uh, Jewish symbol of the lamp. Uh, they um, figured out to be a, a plan with uh, small houses, uh, with large plots in which uh, people could uh, also maintain uh, parallelly a career, as, let's say, as a clerk or as a uh, uh, salesman in the city, but also uh, to farm a little bit uh, at home to uh, grow chickens or uh, eggs or, or plant few uh, vegetables or, or, or trees, etc. Neveh Shanan's original master plan can still be traced on Google Maps. Levinsky Street is the central arm of a seven-branch candelabra model from which three branches are coming out from each side. Hagduda Ivri, Neveh Shanan and Yesoda Maale streets from its right side, and Wolfson, HaKongress and Shivat Zion streets from its left side. You will notice, however, that only the first three streets are fully attached to the main arm. This was the result of a financial difficulties the Nevesha Anan Cooperative found itself in, which prevented it from purchasing the rest of the land that was necessary to complete the plan. This difficulty led to the dismantling of the cooperative and the annexation of the northern part of Nevesha Anan to Tel Aviv in 1927. The neighborhood was connected to Tel Aviv's water supply, and some parts were improved, But overall, Nevesha Anan remained neglected. To develop this area and to accommodate the demographic and economic growth of the central and northern part of Tel Aviv, Nevesha Anan was transformed from an agricultural neighborhood into a transport hub. 
It started with the completion of the old central bus station in the northern part of Neve Shannan back in 1942, and ended with the final materialization of the new central bus station in 1993, 26 years after the building scheme was improved by the Regional Planning Commission. A public transportation project of the size and the complexity of the new Tel Aviv bus terminal is rare in the world today. It is a tribute to all of you that this terminal has been built and will become the operation area tomorrow. However, I must also tell you that as I look around this modern and exciting new terminal, I am saddened. For although my terminal is 1.5 million square feet, today I pass the title of world's largest bus terminal from New York here to Tel Aviv. These are the words of the former managing director of the Port Authority in New York, Janice Witcher, who was invited to participate in the opening ceremony of the new central bus station. Now only the second largest central bus depot in the world, the station was supposed to concentrate the bus activity that overflooded the commercial and residential streets of Neve Shannan. At the time of its opening, it represented something more than just a practical, soon-to-be-disastrous solution. The new central bus station is one of the early examples of privatization in Israel, a gradual shift of responsibilities from public agents and institutions to private contractors, which allowed them to remodel the urban fabric with minimal regard for the welfare of those who would have to live with the consequences of their grandiose visions. In the morning of August 17, 1993, when the buses When the, the new central bus station started to operate with thousands of uh, buses from the morning from five o'clock, it woke us up. I mean, in small, small streets, very narrow streets that were quiet until then, going through our uh, uh, streets uh, into the uh, in, inside and out of the uh, central bus station. You know, the smoke and the air pollution and the road was shaking from the buses and ruined the building. So that morning, I really, it was so significant that I realized how transparent we are uh, uh, to the Uh, to the establishment, to the Tel Aviv Jaffa municipality and the government. Problems had been piling up since the station's first cornerstone was laid in December 1967. Aria Fields, the contractor whose company was in charge of building the central bus station, went into financial difficulties. This placed the construction on pause for 20 years with 20% of the station's skeleton still incomplete. While the station stood empty, it became a playing ground for the kids who lived in a Veshanan, like Shula. She also remembers how, as a child, people commented on the fact that she lives in the bus station neighborhood. In 2002, the two underground floors that contained a mix of bus terminals, stores, and cinema halls were shut down due to severe air pollution. A new floor was added and the bus activity was relocated to the 7th and 6th floors. By this time, the central bus station was under the management of Nitzba. 
They had purchased it from Khaftiba, the only company that offered to buy it from Filz, but eventually had also ended up in debt. One of the side effects of the central bus station being a white elephant for which no one has wanted to take responsibility has been the emergence of an alternative cultural, commercial, communal and even natural life within its walls. The easy commute to the central bus station and its low rent fees attracted facilities and center not found in your average shopping mall or bus station, such as a fringe theater, a Yiddish center, a synagogue, artist studios, art galleries and even a beauty school. Techno lovers will consider the central bus station a gem, with a world-renowned nightclub active on the station's fourth floor for over a decade. They are not, however, the only creatures of the night occupying this place. An endemic species of bats have settled in the station's tunnel, which have since been declared a nature reserve. When walking around the station's vibrant areas, it becomes quite apparent that its most frequent users are migrant workers and asylum seekers. An Asian food market on the fourth floor is packed with products imported mostly from the Philippines, China, India and Thailand, as well as toy stores and traditional Eritrean fashion stores. On the fifth floor, you will find a range of welfare and medical services, such as Philippine and African churches, daycare and two medical clinics one of them is a free sex clinic supporting sex worker, drug addicts, and LGBTQ communities. The migrant workers and asylum seekers community hold different histories, yet in conjunction with the history of Palestine, they can help us to better understand the spatial politics of Tel Aviv Jaffa and how it is related to the other settler colonial practices employed by Israel. The majority of the migrant workers who are currently residing in Israel come from the Philippines and India and work in the Norsin construction and agricultural sectors. Their arrival story, which dates back to the 1990s, is tied to Israel's war on Palestine. The closure policy Israel imposed on Gaza and the West Bank during the first and second Palestinian intifadas interfered with the cheap Palestinian labor force, forced Israel checkpoints daily to work in underpaid construction projects. Privatization of health services around that period also prompted Israel to begin recruiting workers from abroad. Migrant workers in Israel live in an incredibly hostile environment which binds their legal status to one employer. Risking deportation when requesting to move to another employer, migrant workers, as a result, are exposed to exploitative conditions including work around the clock, mistreatment at work, delays in payments, and working while pregnant and after giving birth. Maternity leave and child arrangements depend on the generosity of the employer, thus forcing most pregnant migrants to leave the country. With naturalization rights only automatically offered to Jews through what's known as the law of return, the state does not recognize the status of the children of migrant workers who were born in Israel. As a result, hundreds of children of migrant workers remain without legal status and live daily with the threat of sudden arrest and deportation. The status of asylum seekers in Israel is far from being humane either. Despite Israel being a signatory to the Convention of the Status of Refugees, it lacks a functioning asylum system. Every person who enters Israel without legal permission, even if seeking asylum, is treated under the Prevention of Infiltration Law. Enacted in 1954, this law originally targeted Palestinian refugees who entered Israel to reclaim their home after their mass expulsion during and after the 1948 Nakba. 
Under Israel's settler colonial legal framework, the term refugee is uniquely reserved to Jews who wish to enter the country and obtain citizenship under the law of return and regardless of their personal intentions to do so. Other types of refugees, whether Palestinians who were expelled from their homes or Eritreans and Sudanese fleeing theirs, are criminalized. Since 2012, the law has been amended several times to enable the imprisonment of asylum seekers in detention centers without judicial review. However, High court rulings regarded this policy as inhumane, and the detention period was limited as a result. Following the release of asylum seekers, the state issued them with one-way bus tickets to the central bus station. Out of 64,000 asylum seekers that arrived in Israel since the late 2000s, by 2020, approximately half of them remain. About 15,000 to 17,000 of them reside in the area of South Tel Aviv. This makes Neve Sha'anan one of the most diverse areas in Israel. However, given the settler colonial ideology that dictates racial and socio-economic composition in Israel, the so-called diversity often turns into violent conflict. Here, for example, is the sound of right-wing Jewish politicians inciting the crowd in an anti-African rally in Tel Aviv. With the backing of the Israeli government, much of the frustration around the neglect of the southern neighborhoods of Tel Aviv is targeted at asylum seekers. They are perceived as criminals, a security and demographic threat. A former member of the Knesset, Miri Regev, described them as a cancer within the body of our nation. The verbal and physical abuse against asylum seekers in Eve Sha'anan produced a recurrent image in the media of a brutal war between two groups, the working-class Mizrahi residents and the foreign residents, often portraying the former group as xenophobic, aggressive, and reactionary. This portrayal feeds into the divide-and-rule strategy that has been used by the Israeli governments over the past decade to foster ethno-nationalist sentiments and to evade its responsibilities. It also further deepens the north-south ethno-racial divide between central North Tel Aviv and South Tel Aviv that began with the establishment of Zionist settlements near Jaffa. Returning to our original crime scene, the central bus station might offer us some explanation of how these ethno-racial urban demarcations have been made, and perhaps even further, why the station is still intact. Following the war in 1948, the physical border between Tel Aviv and Jaffa, which was marked by southern neighborhoods such as Neve Sha'anan, was demolished and both cities were unified under one jurisdiction. The supposed unification took down this border only in an official sense. According to Rothbard, it merely transformed into a series of unofficial border-like manifestations, one of which is the new central bus station. Remember the plot that was supposed to be part of Neve Sha'anan, but the neighborhood's cooperative could not afford to purchase it, so it remained within the municipal territory of Jaffa? Following the 1948 war, which led to the expulsion of about 750,000 Palestinians, 115,000 of them from Jaffa, this plot was confiscated by Israel with the rest of Palestinian land. In 1950, the Absentees Property Law gave the confiscation of Palestinian land a legal stamp. The property of any Palestinians who did not remain in their residence after the 29th of November 1947 was classed absentee, thus granting the Israeli state the right to take possession. 
Here is Sharon again describing how this land was redistributed in the Israeli market after 1948. Each party got a portion of land that it could build houses for its supporters or for its members. There were all kinds of professional bodies that received land, actors, judges, journalists even. There was a huge amount of land that was Uh, distributed to uh, people that were kind of uh, close to the uh, then establishment, so above all uh, the army and the people of the military apparatus. So uh, they did uh, uh, neighborhoods for officers, for pilots, for uh, parachutes, for all kinds of categories uh, within the army. Of course, later on, those lands started to uh, become I would say a certain kind of reserve which uh, in fact um, nourishes the whole real estate market uh, ever ever since. Most of the land in Jaffa and South Tel Aviv after 1948 was neglected. And new Jewish immigrants, mostly from the Middle East and North Africa, were settled there alongside Jewish residents who could not afford to move. And the last few Palestinians left in Jaffa were concentrated in the neighborhoods of Al-Ajami and Jabalia. In many of the areas seized by the Israel Land Administration, the question of ownership has never been regulated. Residents are therefore extremely vulnerable to eviction when new development plans materialize. Such was the case with the Givat Amal neighborhood, which was purchased by a private company and its Mizrahi working-class residents criminalized for refusing to leave. In November 2021, following several decades of legal and public battles, The residents were evacuated with compensation so low that they can't afford to purchase property in the neighborhood in which they lived all their life. It was also the case with property in what is now the new central bus station, when back in the 1950s, developer and contractor Arya Filz was looking for unused land in Eveshanan to purchase for his initiative. Initially, Filz declared to the municipality that he intended to develop a new housing project for young families which became the pretext for the eviction of the existing inhabitants. Soon enough, Fields changed his plan and suggested a new kind of collaboration between the state, the city, and the private sector. A new, bigger and improved central bus station in Veshanan to replace the existing one. According to Sharon, such a vanity project could not have taken place prior to 1948. Because it is a big land, which, of course, you cannot have uh, in the um, original... Uh, let's say, um, quasi-legal regime uh, of uh, land regime in, in Palestine up to, 40, uh, uh, up to 48. This is why when you go in the city center of Tel Aviv, you have plots and a certain uh, urban fabric. Maintaining a particular urban fabric in the central and northern parts of Tel Aviv, one that is characterized with low-rise buildings, is praised in a 1950s promotional video commissioned by the city's municipality. Once I saw a picture of New York. Well, Tel Aviv is almost the same. Apart from the fact, of course, that we haven't got skyscrapers. Yet. But what do we need skyscrapers for anyway? We like our sky and we don't want it to be hidden from view. And when you get out to all those, let's say, uh, confiscated lands, Uh, you will see uh, big plots, so it enables, uh, it enables the, the state and its municipalities 
uh, to uh, erect parks or schools or museums or all those huge campuses, whether it is in Jerusalem or in Tel Aviv or whatever, uh, wherever, it is always on those kind of large portions of land. It enables, of course, it enables uh, the construction of new uh, large uh, neighborhoods uh, at once. So um, uh, the, the question of the urban fabric, which lacks in those uh, areas in Israel, it is not a matter of an architectural uh, choice or some kind of uh, aesthetics. It is something which stems from the land regime. The construction of a large industrial and residential complex on confiscated Palestinian lands marked a new border between what Sharon defines as the White City and the Black City. In his book, Sharon clarifies these terms through a historical and political reading of divided spaces. It does not stem from the color of the architecture or people, but rather from all that is unwanted in the White City, which was relegated to the Black City. This includes all the inconvenience of metropolitan infrastructures such as garbage dumps, sewage pipes, high voltage transformers, towing lots and overcrowded central bus stations, noise and air polluting factories and small industries, illegal establishments like brothels and casinos. Unwelcoming and intimidating public institutions such as the police headquarters, jails, pathological institutes and methadone clinics. All these are located in southern neighborhoods of Tel Aviv and Jaffa far from the convenient and pastoral urban fabric of central and north Tel Aviv. Jaffa turned into a reserve of Tel Aviv's urban development and capital accumulation. It was labeled a slum clearing zone in planning documents and its Palestinian residents were pressured to leave their houses through a range of freezing policies that prevented them from renovating or building new construction. The underdevelopment of Palestinian Jaffa became another means from which the great port city was culturally, ethnically and historically erased in favor of the development of a wealthy Israeli Jewish city. The poor and larger Mizrahi neighborhoods of South Tel Aviv, on the other hand, became a frontier, protecting Central and North Tel Aviv from what have been framed as national threats, environmental hazards, and social outcast. The last stop of all that is unwanted. Against this backdrop, with a frontier wall allocated to Neve Sha'anan alongside the rest of Tel Aviv's southern neighborhoods, we must wonder how much positive change will occur if and when the buses are evacuated from the central bus station. Current redevelopments for the area of Neve Sha'anan might point to some of the potential scenarios, none of which suggests better living condition for the neighborhood's current residents. Instead, they would mean the annexation of parts of the neighborhood in favor of the growth of the white city at the expense of the black city. Take for example the plan to develop a new cultural campus that will accompany a new skyscraper neighborhood on the grounds of the old central bus station in Neve Sha'anan. The campus will become the new home for the internationally renowned Israeli dance group Batsheva. Here Shula explains everything that is wrong with the plan. Why to give the Batsheva dancing group such a, a, a huge campus and want to, why to spend from the public money, Texas money, hundreds of millions for that dancing group? It's unbelievable. This is one thing. Second thing, they already have places of, you know, stages in Evet Sedek, in Susan Dalal. Third of all, they come to a neighborhood that they uh, have multiculturals, not Ashkenazi culture, but Mizrahi culture and Arab culture and African culture. And this campus, campus will erase, I mean, the, the, 
it will be transparent uh, completely in this neighborhood. And, you know, it's a, it's a cultural gentrification. Chula's activism, Inevesha Anan, highlights how the cultural erasure of the neighborhood is inseparable from its material neglect. Apart from the activities aimed directly against the central bus station, such as founding a residential committee to fight for its closure, Shula, alongside other feminist activists, have made Nevesha Anan a focal point from promoting and creating Mizrahi culture and history. In 2005, they established Achoti House. We have there a library, a feminist library. We have also a coffee shop, a, and we make their courses, and a movie screening, and a workshops. Uh, so, and also we work there as an office, you know, with a computer and do our work. Throughout these, we also make there uh, cultural events and, and exhibitions, etc. Achoti means my sister in Hebrew. Since its establishment, it has offered a safe haven for women living around the neighborhood and an open community center. It also operates as the base for numerous activist initiatives, such as the protest camp that was erected in Levinsky Garden, right in front of the central bus station, during the 2011 Israeli summer protest for social justice. This protest marked a shift in the ways Israelis have become more vocal about socioeconomic hardships, particularly in light of the rising cost of living and housing shortages. The mainstream encampment, however, which was erected at the heart of the white city of Tel Aviv on Rothschild Boulevard, was called out by activists and critical scholars for its middle-class Ashkenazi dominance and national conformity. The main demand of the Rothschild protest camp, which was embraced by journalists and politicians alike, called for a fix to the existing socio-economic system and avoided connecting this to the settler colonial reality in Palestine-Israel. In the black city, protest camps in the southern parts of Tel Aviv Jaffa They were formed by Mizrahi single mothers, Palestinian families under threat of eviction, migrants and asylum seekers, articulated a powerful intersectional and anti-colonial critique. These alliances were, perhaps unsurprisingly, perceived illegitimate by the authorities and the municipality evacuated the protest camp several times until its final demolition in October 2011. Several grassroots movements emerged after the dismantling of the Levinsky protest camp, such as Power to the Community, a multi-ethnic initiative that has organized resident-led security patrols and led public campaigns against the deportation of asylum seekers, the central bus station, and more recently, for COVID-19 vaccination for undocumented residents. While politicians evade responsibility for rehabilitating the neighborhood by shifting the blame onto the private sector and the refugees, And the media reinforced the image of Nevesha Anan as a brutal battleground between several underprivileged communities. Such solidarity networks and grassroots activism succeed in overcoming the divide and conquer strategy. They expose the underlying colonial relationships and systematic racism that shape the geography of Tel Aviv and Palestine Israel more broadly. You know, a friend of mine told me that uh, something very nice from the Judaism that they say, whoever lives in the dark, See the ones that live in the light. Whoever lives in the light do not see the ones that live in the dark. And this is the situation. We see whoever lives in the white city in the light, 
with wellness and you know good uh, conditions etc and we know and we know what's happening we know that we are this being discriminated we know that we are transparent they don't see us we are completely transparent As I keep hearing testimonies from the residents of Neveshanan and the shop owners of the central bus station and learning more about the politics around the station's management, plans for its closure and future development, several questions regarding the fate of the station come to mind. The first is when the evacuation will take place. The other ones are what forms will the evacuation take, who will benefit from it and at what cost. For many years now, Nitzba, the company that currently owns the central bus station, has run it into the ground to drive down the value of the property owned by the building's many tenants. So uh, what they do is to uh, try to suffocate the building. They, um, they don't air. Uh, you go there, the escalate doesn't don't work. Uh, there's no air condition. All the uh, many entrances are, are blocked. so they're kind of trying to the building in a kind of a decay. Uh, deliberately in order to uh, make things worse. So now uh, the news is that uh, there was some kind of op- uh, windows of opportunities that will uh, that enabled uh, the shutting down of the uh, station uh, in 2024. Uh, unfortunately, uh, due to uh, the misdeeds of the Uh, Mayor Ron Khuldei and the uh, Minister of uh, Transport, uh, Mirav Mikhaeli, uh, it seems that uh, uh, it won't happen. So they promised that it would shut down in four, th- four years, but I'm not sure it will happen in my life anymore. The central bus station is included in Tel Aviv's 2016 master plan. And marked out for a large residential, commercial and tourist complex. Based on the approved redevelopment plans for the area of the old central bus station, it seems that the communities who lived around the new central bus station area are at the bottom of the priority list. Profitable plots from the neighborhood will be annexed to the affluent parts of the city, while containing and shrinking the other parts that do not fit demographically and culturally into the white city vision of Tel Aviv. This is far from doing any justice to decades of erasure, destruction, construction and neglect. Shula, however, remains hopeful. You know, Vicky Shiran, Dr. Vicky Shiran, eh, God bless her soul, eh, one of the establishers of the eh, Akhuti movement, passed away in 2004, one of the most important eh, Mizrahi feminists and feminists in Israel. She told me once, you know, people, she told me, you know, Shula, people think that the revolution, you can do it like that very quickly, you know, instantly. She said, no, it's like, it takes so much time. And she metaphored it as scratching the wall. And that's what we did for th- th- uh, three decades, scratching the wall in order to that wall to break so we will be reborn to a new world, to a just world. I believe, I have faith that this is the way because if we will give up, nothing will be corrected. We are, we are struggling and fighting for human rights. 
We are the underprivileged communities. We are the victims of this uh, system. And we are uh, resisting this situation. And from the dark place that we, we are, we see what the people in the light are doing and how much they do not see us. We are striving to continue the struggle to make uh, the, you know, the world a better place. I mean, as, as much as it sounds cliche, this is, the fa- this is what we are doing and hoping to make our community, our neighborhood, our country a better place, not only for the white Jewish elite, but for all the others. What an episode. Sick episode, right? Another incredible episode of Material Crimes. We are really excited today to have the narrator, producer and creator of the episode, Moore Cohen, with us to talk about what we've all just listened to. Moore is a Leverhulme postdoc researcher in the geography department at the University of Sheffield, researching art and politics in Israel, Palestine. And Moore is now one of our key contributors to the Material Crime series. Hi, Moore. Yeah. Good to be here. More, I just want to get straight into it. Like that was such an incredible episode and I learned so much about the politics of transport, the politics of boundaries, the politics of bordering, racialization, capital, infrastructure. It just had everything. It was the perfect episode in terms of looking at the materiality of crimes. And obviously, as we know, that's the the basis of what this series is looking to uncover. And I guess what I would like to talk to you about what I'd like to get from you is how you found the process not just from a researcher point of view an academic point of view but from a personal point of view it is a quite a long process I think it's one of my last things that I produced around that topic Um, and it started quite early on I think already back in my master where I was was interested both from a personal but also from academic background in the area of South Tel Aviv for two reasons. When I was living in Jerusalem, I was a volunteer at the, um, the Jerusalem African Community Center. I mostly helped asylum seeker um, fill up asylum requests. And I was start, I started my, my master thesis at that time and I was interested in um, the relationship between art and migration. And this is where I, I found myself looking at uh, South Tel Aviv because, because of the existence of the multilingual library that a group of artists built uh, right next to the central bus station. Um, and that kind of led me there. And at the same time, I was also interested in uh, Mizrahi art, which listeners know now by now what Mizrahi means. And... I guess coming from Mizrahi background myself um, and study art history and but not learning about Mizrahi art, I was interested in um, alternative spaces for art production and South Tel Aviv was exactly the the space there. So it was the accumulation of so many personal and professional interests that build up, helped me to shape my, my research interest, but also in my political point of view and also my, I guess, pedagogical interest as well. I was 
volunteering at um, the Garden Library um, in South Tel Aviv as well, and was interested in a lot of informal education. So I felt that a lot of things that accumulated throughout the last maybe six, seven years finally came to this final <laughs> episode. Final piece of work, yeah. Amazing, yeah. Moore, thank you. So Moore, did you find it hard to go and get the interviews? By the time I started to produce this episode, it wasn't that I was hoping to also include um, voices of uh, the refugees and the migrant communities. And I did contact the Israeli contacts that I have from the library. And for very un- understanding, understandable reason, uh, they they were they were hesitant about it. So the, their main policy is that they, they deliver their requests for interviews to the to the community through WhatsApp. And if the communities are interested, they contact me directly. Um, and the reason is that they get a lot of medial attention um, in Israel. Um, everyone wants to interview them for for various reasons, for you know, to 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 hear about their life, but also sometimes for less pleasant, for welcoming reasons. The Israeli interlocutors that are working closely with a group of asylum seekers are very much protected t- towards them. And at the end, no one contacted me back, which I completely understood that. That was one of the, the, the main challenge. In terms of t- uh, contacting the two main interviews that I had, Shula Keshet and uh, Sharon Rothbard, it wasn't as difficult because I've been working with Sh- uh, Shula Keshet uh, before that. we were I was writing um, an article for... Um, a book about Arctic activism that her uh, movement, um, Achoti, was, was published just recently in in Hebrew. Having this conversation with her was was fairly easy, and as well with Sharon, who was also very generous, um, immediately agreed. That was the easy easy part of the interviews. Thank you so much for that, more. I want to ask you a bit of a challenging question, more. How do you think that processes of anti-blackness were? both experienced, narrated and present within your episode? I think it's a really difficult process because, well, I guess the most direct anti-blackness is the um, upfront racism that exists in, in the area of South Tel Aviv. But generally in everywhere, every place in Israel where you have black communities, whether they are um, Ethiopian Jews, um, which have been living in Israel since the 1970s, uh, the majority of them immigrated during the 1990s. And whether it's later on communities of asylum seekers that mostly come from Eritrea um, and Sudan, uh, they, they are the biggest group of asylum seekers in Israel. Regardless of, they are the one who experience direct racism because of the color of their skin. It's mm. It's not as subtle sometimes as I often see in the UK, <laughs> um, but again, because I'm not black in the UK, I don't know how it feels in the everyday. But you witnessed, anyway. you definitely witnessed, and it came through within your episode, like a hierarchy of racialization, but like a pronounced, manufactured, socially yeah. reproduced anti-blackness that was um, obviously associated with migration as well as it was with the, yeah. the boundaries of Israel and Palestine as well. Yeah, so that one is just straight in your face. Um, and there's also the evolution of racism and anti-blackness that started in, in, in Israel-Palestine prior to the arrival of, of black immigrants yeah. or Ethiopian Jews. And that was the kind of racism that was aimed towards, first of all, towards Palestinian and then also towards 
Mizrahi Jews, that mm. their arrival to Israel was considered to be, and this is something that, uh, for example, a uh, cultural scholar, Ella Shochat, uh, talks a lot about it. They were considered to be the kind of cheap labor force that would benefit also for the demographic cause to increase the number of Jews in, in, in Palestine, even before the establishment of Israel. And at the same time, because they were not of a European heritage, um, a lot of assumptions about what kinds of, you know, their intelligence, their their capability, what they can handle. So they were stigmatized as the kind of labor force that will be brought to Israel in order to build the new infrastructures. So we see a lot of different types of evolution in terms of how blackness is defined. And I guess this is perhaps the kind of interesting connection between Mizrahiness and blackness is the emergence of the Black Panther movement in Israel by Moroccan Jews who lived in Jerusalem. And they had a very kind of nuanced reading. They saw what happened in the US. They they identify similarities in how they treated in, in Israel as well. And they decided to kind of create this alliance kind of of how they've been treated because of their their origin because of their ethnicity so a lot of that was such a brilliant that was such a brilliant answer more to such a like quite a challenging question that just to say to listeners as well more didn't know that question was yeah. coming so thank you so much yeah, yeah. <laughs> what does the the bus station what does it say about the state of israel and what it's trying to project in its creation of infrastructure uh, it sound it probably sound very pessimistic time to end it but I don't know. It's like a microcosms of Israel, in my opinion. It's just like this, this thing, this huge structure that tries to hold, but its foundations are so rotten and so corrupt. Um, it's just a matter of time until it <laughs> will fall. But my my fear is that you don't know how the outcome is going to look like. Okay. Um, uh, if the evacuation of of the bus station will mean a spa- spatial justice for for the residents of Neveshanan or and uh, a better treatment for for migrants and asylum seeker communities, or that will just mean relocating them to another ghetto and use that area to to redevelop this this place and kind of annex it to the more affluent part of the city so that's one of the things that it's really hard to tell and at the same time within this corrupt infrastructure you do see these you know you, you hear Shula Keshet you hear the alliances of Mizrahi feminists in Shanan and the migrant and asylum seeker communities how they try to to build this kind of grassroots network of support um, and opposition to the Israeli government in so many ways so the only kind of good foundation that holds this this area um that's the hope that's the hope thank you so much for contributing to material crimes you have been outstanding and amazing what an amazing episode thank you thanks, <laughs> thanks so, so much thanks, thanks so much more. listeners this Take was surviving society presents material crimes you've been listening to surviving society presents material crimes season one please follow rate, subscribe and review on your preferred podcast platform.